I want to thank everyone this week for all the text messages and lots of people checking in on my head and my ear. If you didn't know, I got beamed in the head at the softball game. And uh, unfortunately, those of you there, you got to see just how hard-headed I am. But I will say you should have seen the ball. I'm doing good. If my speech starts, you know, flipping around and stuff, then you'll know something's wrong. But then again, I do that all the time, so. We're going to finish our little mini-series within our series on the stages of discipleship this morning. We've been looking at uh, these four stages, dead, infancy, could say adolescence, child, young adulthood, and then maturity. And in one sense, maturity is both an absolute and a relative thing. Um, In one hand... There are definitely Christians who are more mature than others and who have become and manifest the character of Christ more clearly and nearly than others do. In another sense, none of us will ever be there until we put off this body of flesh and are made perfect in His image and glory. So it's in that sense, a hard thing. But I did have the most wonderful illustration given to me yesterday at my house. Like many of you, um, we have those... We call them mud daubers, barn swallows, making nests right up above your door so they can poop on you when you walk out. Anybody else have those in their home? Okay. Well, we've had uh, four babies growing in that nest, and they furnished for me the, the greatest example of these stages of discipleship. Unfortunately, one of those babies we found on the ground dead a couple weeks ago. The next, uh, yesterday we woke up, however, and we saw one of the little chicks on the ground, and and to our thinking, we thought it had fallen out. And so we, without touching it, put it back. Jill did, using the broom. Not quite sure how you did that. Put it back up in the nest. A few hours later, we saw two more on the ground, and so we again thought they'd just fallen out prematurely, so we put them back up there. We went away for the afternoon, and, and when we came back, they were there on the ground again. This time, three of them. One was kind of looking bad. But we put them back up again. And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to watch these things. Are they just clumsy or what's happening? So Natalie and I stood at the door and we watched as two of them perched themselves up on the ledge of the nest and battled back and forth, you know, gaining the courage to finally jump off. The lead one, you could tell it was more courageous. It was, it was the one testing the waters. It finally jumped off and fluttered down and hit the ground with a thud and then just sat there for a long time. We watched the other one and it, it kept looking around and, and, you know, thinking, where'd my friend go? And finally, probably about 30 minutes later, it jumped off as well and it really hit the ground with a thud. So then I understood what was happening. Oh, they're, they're spreading their wings. But they weren't there yet. They just kind of sat on the ground. And I remember thinking as I'm watching them up on the, on the nest, thinking, the second one who really struggled to get the courage to jump, I thought, you know, that's like so many Christians. Here they, they have all that they need in their wings to get out of this nest, which is all they really have ever known, and to see what awaits them. And they have in their wings the ability to counteract their fear and just fly off. But it's not developed yet. And even after they jumped, they didn't do it so well. They fell on their face. But hey, at least they're on the ground and they can see the world. Maybe that's inspiring to them. Maybe that's going to motivate them to, to get going. And I thought, that's, 
That's so much like the next stage of discipleship, right? They, they move from infancy out of the nest down to the ground, but they still don't know how to fly. They're still learning. They're still strengthening their wings. And pretty soon, one of them started walking around and hopping and fluttering. Still hasn't flown off as of this morning. He's just been sitting on a little, on a little branch looking at us. But through it all, as I watched this process of these birds learning to fly, through it all, there was one consistent. The parents. As they sat perched up on their nest, the parents were always close by. Chirping at them, encouraging them. They could see that the birds weren't getting the courage, so they'd fly in front of them, flap their wings, and then fly away and, and watch. And then they'd chirp at them some more until they finally jumped. And once they jumped and fell face first on the ground, then they'd fly down to the ground and chirp at them. Sometimes they'd go to the ground, sometimes they'd be right above them, sometimes they'd fly back up to the house. But never did the parents leave the babies as they were trying. And I thought, there's the fourth stage, maturity. The parents knew what these little chicks needed. They never abandoned them, and they kept encouraging them until they started moving. I thought, thank you, Lord. I see discipleship right there. How badly little chicks learning to fly need the mature to come encourage them and help them, push them along the way until they get their own wings under them and can fly themselves. We're going to look this morning at maturity in Christ. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, so go ahead and open up there. And as I've already said, this is at one time an absolute and yet a relative thing. None of us will ever achieve pure, absolute maturity. However, the Lord has put it before us as our pursuit, and He Himself is that pursuit. So if you would, read with me in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we're going to read through verse 16. Paul writes, And he gave, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, it's been my prayer, and I pray, Father, You answer it now, that You would set before us a vision of who we are to be as a church, who we are to be as individual members of Your church, Father. Father, that You would motivate us because of who You are and what You've done for each one of us in saving us as we've just got done singing, of forgiving our sins, of causing us to be born again, to have a living hope, Father. Would that be all the motivation we need to pursue You, to press on to knowing You, Christ our Lord. 
Father, for those who've entered here this morning, maybe not wayward physically, but wayward in their heart, Lord, who've, who've distanced themselves from a walk with You, from fellowship with You, Lord, I pray in Your, your mercy and in Your grace You draw them back to that warmth, that comfort You provide, to the strength that You give for the weak. Father, that You would convict and yet encourage Father, convict that we must press on to know You, as Hosea says, and yet encourage in that You give us all the grace we need to do it. Not looking at ourselves, but looking at Christ. Father, make us a mature church. Help us to grow past infancy and adolescence, Lord. Father, for those here who don't know You, I pray that You draw them by seeing the excellency of who You are and what You offer each one of us life in Christ, hope everlasting, a future with you in heaven. Father, we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to move pretty quickly through the first two verses, verse 11 and verse 12, primarily because we've covered this before. It's been a while. But in verse 11, Paul writes this, that God gave, and this intended is God gave to the church, So here's some God-given gifts to the church. He says four offices, the apostle, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor, teachers. So what Paul's going to begin to do for us in this passage is to lay out what is God's plan and what is God's provision for us to grow up into Him. And it begins with Him giving the church something to help meet that end. First, the apostles. We know the apostles. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere that it was on the apostles, Christ Jesus being the chief one, that the foundation of the church was laid. Christ Jesus being that foundation. It was the apostles who delivered with the authority of Christ the totality of the faith. And when I use that phrase, the faith, because we're going to get to it again, what I'm referring to is the body of teaching that is the gospel as well as the rest of scriptures. The totality of the faith. Jude references it. In Jude chapter 3, that he, he says, you are to defend, right? Make a fight over those who are threatening the faith that's been delivered to you. Contend for it. Fight for it. So the apostles, it was them who delivered the totality of faith with the authority of Christ. The prophets is referring to those who declared or preached and expounded on that revelation. The apostles delivered it. They were also prophets and preachers themselves. But there's also the office of prophet. It's not someone necessarily who, who foretells the future, but foretells what God has revealed already. They declare the revelation of God in Christ. The evangelists are those missionaries both at home and abroad who were to expand the kingdom of God through sharing the gospel. They were to grow the church outward. And on the other flip side of that coin are the shepherds and teachers. It's one office. It's pastors who once the evangelists bring in the lost, shepherds and teachers are then to build up those new converts in Christ. They are to shepherd them. They're to teach them. They're to feed them. Sometimes they're to discipline them until we all grow in maturity. So those are the four offices. Those are gifts, Paul says, God gave to the church. But then in verse 12, He makes it clear two things. He gave them to equip the saints for the building up 
the body of Christ. Let's talk real quickly about equipping the saints. For what? What are you, the saints, that's who he's referring to, what are you to be equipped in? He says the work of ministry. So here's the chief idea that I want you to get from this. Ministry is not simply to be done by the pastoral staff or elders. In fact, our chief ministry is to equip you to do the ministry. So get this in your head. If you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. Some way, somehow. If we had time, we could go look at 1 Corinthians 12, at the spiritual gifts that God gives to each member of His body. And each member is to use that gift for the building up of the body, for its edification, for its strengthening. So you are to know what your giftedness is in, and you are to exercise that gift to equip the church. You are a minister. There is therefore no excuse for you not to be involved in ministry. And I'm not, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying if you're not serving at Waypoint, you're in sin. And I also understand that there's seasons of life for people where your service is going to be hindered just because of the season you're in. But I also want to challenge you to see there is always ministry opportunity in whatever and wherever you're at. Even if it's, in your mind, minute in scale, you have ministry opportunity. You are, we are to equip you to build up the work of ministry. Let's talk about this idea of building up the body of Christ. That's what the work of ministering is. And, and on the onset, again, I want to say this so we understand rightly. The ministries of the church so often lose direction, they lose power, they lose focus because they lose vision of this point right here. Why do we do ministry? What is the purpose? Is it simply just to get together and get to know each other? That's great. We need to do that. But to what end are we doing it? Is it to build each other up in Christ? Because if it's anything other than that, might be fun, might be good, but it essentially will not fulfill the ministry that God gives to us. The ministry is building up the body of Christ. And that can take many forms. In fact, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 12 at the beginning of the chapter, there are a variety of ministries that the Holy Spirit gives to the churches. Just as there are a variety of gifts, so there's a variety of ministries that you can be involved in. Whether in the church or outside of the church. This, I believe, is a point where the church can be creative. It's not always a black and white, you know, hey, if it doesn't fit in this little box, it's not truly ministry kind of idea. In fact, if you look at the history of the church, this is part of what I read this, this week very briefly, is just how the church has affected the world and the various aspects of societies that the church has changed. Christians have gotten involved in economics, in politics, in healthcare, in church. It was Christians primarily who, who would rush in, for instance, under Nero when he set Rome on fire and everyone was fleeing. It was the Christians who were fleeing into Rome to help those who were burning with the plague. It was Christians primarily who elevated the status of women within society. It was Christians primarily who helped to end the practice of slavery. Over and over and over, Christians get involved in society in various aspects to change. Remember one of the most exciting verses I think you can see in Scripture, Revelation 21.5. Jesus says this right before the end of His revelation to us. Behold, I am making all things new. 
Church, you realize that this avenue of ministry, whatever that ministry might be, is God's avenue to make all things new in the world. And He uses you to do it. By making first you a new creation, He then causes you to do the same thing. He working through you. So the building up of the body of Christ is primarily that aspect to which I am to equip you for. So if you're a teacher, that's your gift. I want to equip you to be a good, adequate teacher. If you're a mercy shower, I want to equip you to see how mercy properly functions. If you're a gift as hospitality, how you can better use that gift of hospitality. If your gift is faith, I want to encourage you in your faith. Whatever the gifting might be, I want to equip you so that you exercise your gift in your ministry to the fullest, that you might bear the most fruit for the Lord. So I hope that picture is clear. This is what a maturing church looks like. In fact, my vision for our church is this. When I see every member who comes here know what their gift is and use it, that's when I'll be excited. When not one of us is content to sit on a pew and not do anything, but are out there ministering or in here ministering in some capacity, that's a growing, maturing church. And whatever I can do, and whatever Bo can do, and whatever Dwayne can do to help you grow in that, that's our heart, and that's our calling as shepherds. That's what we want. So let's look a little more closely and ask a few more questions. So he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry? It's building up the body of Christ. Well, then you ask, how long is that to go on? Verse 13 tells us, until we all attain, and then he says two things, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He uses the phrase to mature manhood. Um, and then he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Really, those are the same ideas. Mature manhood is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's one and the same thing. Well, what's mature manhood? A mature person is this. A mature church is this. Those who've come together and they have unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Now that may seem too simple, you say. It may not after we dive into those two things a little bit. But here really is the crux of my message this morning. So I want you to follow me on these two points. The unity of the faith. Literally, the word unity means this. One. Oneness. Paul uses the same word in, in chapter 4, verse 3, speaking about the Spirit of God, the unity of the Spirit, the oneness of the Spirit. And here, he's referring to unity of the faith. As I said already, that's that body of doctrine delivered in the Scriptures to the church, especially it regards the gospel revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about this unity of the faith. We have written in our statement of faith as our pursuit this phrase, and I put this phrase in our statement of faith very intentionally. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, charity. I'm sorry. In, in the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Okay. Now is that a compromise? No. In all things, we are to be coming together in unity. 
but there are truths that are delivered to the church that are essential to the church so that if any one of them were denied or compromised, you cannot have unity, nor can you even have fellowship with someone who were to compromise or deny those truths. And so there is a, there is essential truths that the church cannot compromise. We must have the same mindset. And if we don't, there literally is no fellowship or unity possible. Okay? Some of those truths that are, that are core, some examples would be this, the incarnation of Jesus, that he was both fully God and fully man. The whole doctrine of atonement rests on the incarnation of Christ. His virgin birth is an essential doctrine. His sinless life is an essential doctrine. If he was with sin, he is not our substitute for sin. There is still no atonement. His real death on the cross, and I say real death intentionally because some people argue he didn't really die. Yes, he did. His real burial and resurrection. Some people argue Jesus only raised spiritually from the dead. No, he raised bodily. And that is essential. The holiness and manifold nature of God. We need to understand the concepts of grace, faith, works, repentance. There's a host of false doctrines that swirl around those ideas. We are saved by works. No, we are saved by grace through faith. So there are many modern teachers that will twist some of those core teachings to their own destruction. I'll give you one example. Pastor Rob Bell, maybe you've heard of him. He was pastor of a church in Minnesota, I believe. Part of the emerging church movement. Has a pretty large following. Wrote a book several years back where he denied the existence of hell because in his mind, the teaching that God is love doesn't square with the idea of punishment and wrath and hell. So he disavowed that doctrine altogether. Now that's nothing new. Many through the centuries have done that. But I was glad to see men like Francis Chan and others quickly fire back and condemn that teaching and call it out for what it was as heresy. But what it revealed was this. Rob Bell's been in the church and he calls himself a Christian. It revealed he's no Christian at all. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing leading astray those under him. Now that happens all the time. So there are core things we must know. However, there are things that are non-essentials where if you were to disagree with a fellow believer on, you can still fellowship with them. Now I'll say this. Any disagreement on any point of doctrine means you don't have unity. But it doesn't mean you can't have fellowship. Does that make sense? One of my favorite, as you guys know, is the, the teaching of old earth creationism versus new earth creationism. You can have fellowship with someone on both sides of that. People throughout all church history have disagreed. But I want to point out Paul's word to prove this. Okay, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.13. He says, You are to be equipping the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. That first word in verse 13, Until we all attain to. What does that tell you? Does it say that you have perfect unity now? Or that you are to be working toward perfect unity and you're to be working toward it until you get it? That's how I read it. And that's how it's written. 
There are just going to be things, especially for new Christians, they don't get, and maybe they, they believed wrongly before they came to Christ. What are you to do who are mature and may understand the scriptures more fully than they? You're to come alongside them and bring them into fuller understanding. Remember the example in the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila came up to the great mighty preacher Apollos, who was no slouch preacher, but there's some things he didn't understand. They very humbly and gently pull him aside and say, hey, let me explain the way of the faith more fully to you. Bringing in better unity. They had fellowship, but they were attaining unity. So that's what I mean. And Paul says, any point of doctrine delivered in these scriptures is important. Otherwise, I don't think God would have said it. Everything's important. But we've got to recognize as a church, some things are essential, some are non-essential. In all things, though, we must have charity, grace. So when it comes to the totality of the faith and being of the same mind, that's the approach Waypoint will take. And that's what we will practice. We want all to come into unity. And we will continue, as shepherds of you, to work and labor for that. So, the next point, not only are we to press on and build up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, but also until we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the second reason Paul identifies for building up the body of Christ and the second mark of what a mature Christian is. Now, I want to explain this. This is really the most important point of my sermon. We have the English word knowledge. And usually we think of knowledge as simply the acquiring of facts, the acquiring of statements, doctrinal and analytical analysis of something. And there is a Greek word that communicates that idea. Gnosis is the Greek word. Knowledge, simply things you know. The word Paul uses here is a bigger word than that. It's epinosis. And what he's driving at is this. Paul's not so concerned as the facts that you know about Jesus but the experience of those facts that you have with them. It's one thing for me, I've been telling you, I've been reading a lot about history. Um, most recently, reading a lot about World War II. And I've acquired a lot of knowledge, facts. But I guarantee you, I do not have the same kind of knowledge that someone who was in those battles has. That very clearly illustrates the difference. I like watching those documentaries on it. And you can see the emotion coming out of those men who experienced those battles that I've just read about. Do you see the difference, church? Now here's why I think this is the most important point for us. I think too many of us know facts and don't experience them. This is where I want us to grow. I'm not saying it's wrong to know facts. That's where it starts. You have to know facts. But if that's not pressing on somehow, some way, to your daily experience of Christ, you're not maturing. And I want you to mature. There are so many precious truths that the Lord hands to His church that we're, we're so often like that bird sitting on the edge of the nest. We have wings and yet we won't fly. All we know is our reality is what's in this little mud hole, and yet there's a whole world out there that we could be flying around. That's the difference. 
Jesus Christ our Lord has called us into a fellowship with Him that elevates each one of us far beyond what we could think or comprehend and experience. So when Paul says he wants us to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, he doesn't simply want us to have all of our doctrinal T's crossed and our theological I's dotted. And church, I pray we never become just like that. I want to have my doctrinal T's crossed and theological I's dotted. But if that's where it stops, I tell you we will be the most crusty, dead church you'd ever visit. I don't want that. I've been there before. It's a major problem. I want us, all of us, to be able to speak with intimacy of how the Lord deals with you personally. I want, I want to hear from your mouths, and you should hear from my mouths, of, hey, man, the Lord did something for me this week. And you can, with experience, point to the Lord's activity in your life. You can speak with intimacy of how He deals with you in your heart and your soul. The wrestlings with God that are so common in Scripture. That's what I want to see happening. Where you're not speaking about God, you're speaking with familiarity. That's what the church needs. That's why I picked that song to sing. I want to know you, God. And once I know you, I want to know you more. That's what we need. Too many in the church know facts. Too few in the church are experiencing them in a real, living way. I want to read just a few examples from the Scriptures out of the Psalms. Bo read one of them at a Psalm 42 where David writes, Man, God, I long for You. Right? But Psalm 34.8 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How many of you could, with experience, taste and see, talk about God's goodness to you? And I don't mean expound on it doctrinally. How many of you have tasted and seen God's goodness in your life? That's what we want. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord. Literally, the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear Him. You see, the Lord does not reveal His nuggets to the lazy. There are truths that people know of Christ, just as there are truths about Jill, none of you will ever know that I know. You will only learn and experience as you walk with Him. As Bo said earlier, through fire, through wind, through rain, through sunshine, whatever season of life you're in, you've come to know the Lord's faithfulness. You've come to see the Lord's provision. You've seen Him answer prayer definitely in your life. You pray for something specifically, and He gives it specifically. You can point to example after example of how God works and moves and lives and breathes in you. And what I fear most of all for any church I'll ever pastor, and this one now, is that all we'll ever know is just facts, 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 facts. And we gather together Sunday in, Sunday out, and we're not experiencing the Lord weekly, daily, monthly. But that's what I'm striving for. Psalm 32, verse 4. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. It's an experiential statement. One that we probably don't like, right? Conviction. 
But even in that, God, I'm glad you convict me. Why? Because I know you're working in me then. Just like David said in Psalm 23, your rod and staff, they comfort me, Lord. Because I know if I'm being disciplined for something in my life, at least I know I'm your child, Hebrews 12. Because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. You see, it's such a great danger to be resting simply on doctrinal knowledge and not experiencing it. That's why Paul uses that word. A mature church is a church that knows the truth, and that truth is living and active daily in them. They know the Son of God. So that's mature manhood. As I said earlier, he uses then three metaphors to talk about what mature manhood, the fullness of mature manhood looks like. What, what is the measure? So he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's talk about that briefly. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's not very hard to understand, even though it's a mouthful. Christ Himself is the measure of what a mature man is. That is this. The stature of Christ, the fullness of the stature of Christ, is the measure of what mature manhood is. So all that Jesus was, both as God and man, is our goal. Now, has anybody attained it yet? Hopefully not, otherwise you would be in heaven and not here. Everything God is, obviously as God, we cannot, everything that Jesus is is God, um, we're never going to be deity. But the attributes of God, for instance, love, justice, mercy, can exist in us in less than an infinite way. In a real way, nonetheless. As a man, Jesus was the perfect man. He was upright. He honored His parents. He loved His enemies. He spoke truth always. He did what was just and right in every instance. He fulfilled the commandments, for instance, perfectly. He never stole. He never coveted. He never lied. He never lusted. He always honored the Father. He was always worshiping the Father in perfect fellowship. He had perfect self-control. He walked in humility. He gave preference to others, not thinking about Himself only. And you could go on and on and on about the perfections, the fullness of Christ's stature. But that's our goal. And so church, here's the challenge for you. I don't have time to expound on all that, but here's what I would say to you. Read the Gospels and learn who Jesus is. If you want to grow, your greatest need is to learn Jesus, to know Him. I want to read the lyrics to this song. This is what grabbed me at first. The first verse we read, I've tried in vain a thousand ways my fears to quell, my hopes to raise, but what I need, your word has said, is ever only Jesus. That's it. If the church is not connecting you to Him, we're failing. Because not only is He our measure and our goal, He's our power to reach it. If all we're doing is busy activity and not connecting people to Christ, we're failing. And we're not maturing. The third metaphor he gives is found in verse 16. Or verse 15, sorry. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is, into Christ. You see, because in verse 16, it's from Him that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part works properly, makes the body grow by building itself up in love. We are to grow up into Christ. 
It is very difficult to grow up into Jesus when we don't even know who He is. We must know Jesus. We must be connected to Him. He must be our absolute pursuit in all things. It is pivotal. But verse 15, he says something very important. He says a a key of how we are to be able to grow by speaking the truth in love. Above all, what both the dead, infants, and adolescent in Christ need is the truth spoken to them in love. Now, I want to make sure you get that. It's not simply truth spoken, and it's not simply loving them. It's speaking truth in love. Now, why is that important? Because love, without the grounding of truth, can very easily fly off into emotionalism. Right? But truth spoken without love can repel a seeker as well. How many people have you heard yelling and condemning at people the very scriptures we love and adore? I'll give you the greatest illustration of this that was given to me yesterday. When we saw those little birds on the ground, what we assumed was that they'd fallen out prematurely and they weren't ready to get out of the nest. And so in our best intention, we picked them up, put them back in the nest. They fell out again and they fell out again until finally we understood what was going on. But you know what happened? One of them had died weeks before. The one that that had fallen out after we'd put it back already died shortly after we put it back in the nest and it's dead in the nest now. The two that remained, after making the jump the first time, one of them survived, but the second one jumped again after it already survived the jump and broke its neck or something and it watched it die. You see, in my best intention, what I thought was helping them actually led to that little bird's death. If I had simply left it on the floor, it survived the first jump. What I thought was, was something hindering it was actually progress even though it fell on his face. See, church, when you don't speak the truth in love, you're actually hindering someone from growing. You're doing damage to them. One of the qualifications for us as elders surrounded this point. We can do tremendous harm as elders to a young believer. If if we are asking questions, they're asking questions, they don't understand the faith and we're conversing, and we just start bombarding them. You don't get this? I mean, how would that turn someone off, right? Speak the truth, but you do it in love. I want to create an environment in our church where you're allowed to ask questions, to explore, to understand, so that we can grow. We bear with one another until we attain unity in it. The last point here, the body itself requires all members. Verse 16, the body is joined and held together by every joint, with which it's equipped. In the metaphor, that's you. Christ is the head. We're the body. We're the joints. We're held together. And when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, as each Christian discovers their gift and their ministry and operates in it, then the body works properly. But the body will only be as strong as each member operating in it. If you are not operating Serving, building up, the body cannot reach its potential. That's just how Christ has designed it. Christ has left no room for pew sitters in His body. We are His body and we all have a role. 
Some may be more glorified in our minds than others, but we all have a role. One of the things that's fascinating to me about World War II history was there's 54,000 troops simply set behind the lines to supply those soldiers with what they needed, with food, gasoline, bullets, bombs. Now they thought they had a, a low job. I guarantee you those supply soldiers who are giving the soldiers fighting the battle on the front line were every bit as important as the ones firing the guns. And those soldiers firing the guns knew it. If they were to run out of bullets and those supply soldiers weren't bringing them more, what's going to happen? But they didn't get the glory. They weren't the ones running into battle and winning it. They were bringing gasoline. See, we don't covet that. We simply want to know, what's my job? And do it. Build itself up in love. Here's a summary of some characteristics for the mature in Christ. They walk in love. They walk in the power of His Spirit and in self-control. They can exercise wisdom befitting the circumstance. And what I mean, kind of in connection with that next point, they have discernment into spiritual issues is this. They don't just have worldly discernment. And worldly is not necessarily a negative thing there, right? Some businessmen have great discernment into business practices that would best fit their business. Doctors have discernment into the body and what would best suit this ailment, right? So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's worldly. What we need is people who have spiritual discernment into spiritual issues. Who when spiritual things are happening within the church, and guys, we will have it. There's men and women in our body who say, I see what's going on here. They walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. They know how to take an infant in Christ and grow them to maturity. That point in particular is what I've been praying for us in particular. That we would have men and women raised up who would know how to take a young person in Christ and mature them. Now, it may sound easy. It's not. It's not easy. When you get involved in each other's lives, guess what? We have a lot of issues. (laughs) And it's sometimes not easy to discern, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? Where do I need to take them? A mature person can do it. They're able to equip others. I want to read you an example to end. One of the most godly people you would ever be able to read about. Actually, I wanted to say this first. I liked how the the church in Sydney summarized. This was off their website. I loved it. Just what their vision for their church was. And it really is a picture of maturity. Called uh, Called people follow the Lord. Growing people change. Forgiven people give. Found people find people. Saved people serve and God's people gather. Those are all aspects of a mature church in their mind. I love that. It's great. So that's not mine. I'm giving credit to the church. But I want to give you an example of the life of David Brainerd. Some of you may know who he was. He was um, lived in the 1700s. He died at a very young age. He was a missionary to the American Indians. And uh, I don't remember if he married Jonathan Edwards' daughter or was engaged to Jonathan Edwards' daughter. But if you know who Jonathan Edwards was, he's no small hitter. This is an excerpt out of David Brainerd's journal. April 19, 1742, he says, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for His grace, especially to prepare me for the work of ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work, and in His own time to send me into His harvest. Accordingly, in the morning I endeavored to plead for the divine presence for the day, and not without some life in the in the." Late morning, I felt the power of intercession 
for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in this world, and a most sweet resignation of my soul, even consolations of joy in the thought of suffering hardships, distresses, and even death itself, if I could but promote His kingdom. And I had special enlargement in pleading for the enlightenment, enlightening and conversion of those poor Indians. And he says this, In the afternoon God was with me of a truth. Oh, it was blessed company indeed. God enabled me so to agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and cool wind. My soul was drawn out very much for the world. I grasped for multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than from the, for the children of God, though I felt as if I could spend my life in Christ for both. I had great enjoyment in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt such an entire weanedness from this world and so much res- resigned to God in everything. Oh, that I may always live to and upon my blessed God. Amen and amen. I've never wrote a journal entry like that. But that's a mature man in Christ. But you know what? Here's the power of a godly life and a mature life. David Brainerd has affected multitudes of people. I wrote down just a few. William Carey. Many of you know who William Carey was, the father of modern missions. He read David Brainerd's journal, and here's what he wrote. If God can do such thing among the Indians of America, why not among the lost of India? And so he sailed to India, becoming the father of modern missions. Henry Martin was a student at Cambridge, an elite school at the time. He read Brainerd's experiences and was so moved by it, he consecrated himself fully to the missionary work in the East Edward Payson, another one, meditated upon Brainerd's journals. And when he was 22 years old, here's what he wrote in his diary. In reading Mr. Brainerd's life, I seemed to feel a most earnest desire after some portion of his spirit, and he got it. Maybe the best known man outside of William Carey, Robert Murray McSheen. Some of you have heard of him. No slouch himself. If you ever read Robert Murray McSheen's works, you will be challenged beyond belief at his godliness. But here's what he wrote, June 27th, 1832. I've been reading Life of David Brainerd, a most wonderful man. What conflicts of his soul, what depressions of spirit, what desertions to God, what strength, what advancement, what victories within that torn heart. I cannot express what I think when I think of you. Tonight, I am more set on missionary enterprise than ever. You see, when you live a godly, mature life, it spills over into other people. Sometimes people you have no idea it's doing. But that's how the body is to work. That's how it builds itself up in love. Church, I hope I've presented to you a vision of who we are to be. Stages of growth. In an absolute sense, none of us will ever be mature. But that doesn't stop us. It shouldn't stop us from growing into Christ, our head. Know Jesus. Get to know Him. Be in His Word. I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing that song again. But before we do, I want you to just go before the Lord and take some time. Say, Lord, if there's been something hindering me from growing in Christ in my walk with You, ask Him to reveal what that is that you might confess it, that you might turn from it, that you might continue your walk with Him.
If you feel that your heart is just kind of dull in a status quo, confess it. Ask Him to warm, warm your heart to Him, make you zealous again. Take some time and just go before Him before we sing this song again.